This week on The Verge Cast, author Trip Mickle joins the show to tell us about his new book, After Steve. Is Johnny Ive his real source? Then Alex Cran comes on to tell us all about This Week in Gadget Scoops. That's coming up right after this. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to the Vergecast the flagship podcast, The Form Over Function. It looks good. David, what's up, man? Hi, I'm David Pearson. I'm your friend who will always loan you a billion dollars when you want to buy Twitter. There you go. I'm, oh, by the way, I'm Neelai. I'm also your friend. I will not give you any money for any reason. <laughs> we got a great show for you today. David and I are going to talk to Trip Mickle, who just wrote a book called After Steve. We talked about it in the show last week. It's all about Apple and the 10 years after Steve Jobs died. Very much focused on Tim Cook and Johnny Ive. Uh, and then a little later, Alex Kranz is going to join us with talk some gadgets. David, you worked with Trip. I did. So we overlapped when we were both at the Wall Street Journal a few years ago, and I got to see him sort of spin up on the Apple beat. And Apple, uh, as we have all found many times, is an absolutely impossible company to get inside. Like it is, its culture of secrecy goes way back, and it is like based on this being this tiny insular thing where like even the people who work there don't know what the other people who work there are working on. So I got to watch him sort of piece by piece, like get inside the company and start to understand how it works. And I think he said he's been working on this book for like five years, which would track back to kind of when I started working with him. And he did a great job. Like most books I've read about Apple are about a product and they're, they have this sort of one very specific thread, right? And you talk to, you talk to suppliers and you talk to people kind of around this thing to understand like how a product came to be. But he got into like, how the company works and talked about org structures and relationships between people and the kind of thing you just don't get a lot of. I really enjoyed the book and, and I know you did too. I did. I think you'll hear it when we talk to, to Trip. but you know, the book is structured around two big characters, Tim Cook and Johnny Ive, and you can read it in a couple different ways. All of those ways will make people mad. You can read it as <laughs> Johnny I was the soul of Apple's design and he left and now Apple is this like services juggernaut financial company. I think a lot of people think that about Apple and that some of that there's evidence for that in the book, but it's not the whole book. You can read it as Johnny I've got disengaged and Apple's design went sideways with iOS 7 and the first generation watch, which was pretty messy. And then he left and everything got better. You can read it as Tim Cook grew into the role and became very confident after taking over for Steve Jobs. Like, there's all these ways to read this book. And like I said, I think all of them make everybody mad. But I think that's like the sign that it's 
it has the reporting to back up all of those claims. Totally. And I think the, the other only one I would add to that is that there is just like there's an unbearable hugeness of Apple now that like the company just got so big and had so much money. And like there's a there's a bit in the book about when Warren Buffett invested in the company. And there's this feeling of like, oh, my God, this means like regular people's money now depends on <laughs> the stuff that Apple does. And just like what that did to the culture of the company and the fighting internally and all the people who wanted to be in charge of things. And uh, everybody's making hilarious amounts of money along the way. And it's it's just wild. But, yeah, you can kind of take anything away from it you want. And you're probably right. Yeah, and it's again. I think it's because Trip did a great job reporting it. That's enough of us. We should actually just talk to Trip. Here we go, Trip Mickle. <laughs> Trip Mickle, you are the author of After Steve, a book which on the, this very show I described as making everyone mad. Welcome to the Virtuest. Thanks so much for having me. I like I like getting people riled up. That's why I'm here. Yeah, uh, the book is absolutely fascinating. It is about effectively the relationship between Tim Cook and Johnny Ive. Famous Apple. If you're listening to Virtuest, you know who these people are. Like, you just, I don't know, I know what you're doing here. But it's about Tim <laughs> Cook and Johnny Ive and how they grew into their roles and out of their roles after the death of Steve Jobs. Why did you start chasing this book down? It's interesting. When I landed at the journal in 17, after coming off what we called the Sin Beat alcohol and tobacco, I had a cup of coffee with John Markoff. And he was like, you know, one thing you should really look into is, is, is Johnny Ive and the battery. And that's, that's about all John, John said. And I started asking questions and learned pretty quickly that Johnny was growing disillusioned with with Apple. And I just thought that was so interesting. How could you how could you help build this great company and then begin to kind of fall out of love with it, so to speak? It just made me wonder what was what was behind that. And so I just kept asking more and more questions. And eventually he left in 2019. Did this start out to be kind of a, a Johnny and Tim story? Because part of what was so interesting to me about this is like the, the initial frame is like, it's the sort of the story of Apple's decade, right? And then almost immediately, it's the Johnny and Tim story, which to some extent makes sense, right? Like they're the two most important people of the company. But like, was it obvious at the jump that like those were the two main characters of this story? The privilege that you're granted when you get to do a book is you, you're given time to to think and let the story kind of unfold as you think through structure and your and and what you're focused on. And from the outset, I was planning to do the decade at Apple after Steve Jobs. Um, that was really the intention. But the more I looked at that, the more I felt like the best way to tell that story was by chronicling the history of, of Johnny and Tim. And so for a lot of readers who come to this, they're going to say, well, why am I getting the history of Apple all over again? I, I've, I've learned this from Isaacson's book, et cetera. But you, you're going to get a, a different window into that because you're going to be looking at Apple's history, history through Johnny Ives' work and then through Tim Cook's work. And it just it just lent itself to tell the entire Apple story through these two characters and figures that are that are so prominent at the company and really were, were who Jobs set up to lead the company forward. It, it kind of naturally evolved that way, honestly. Yeah, so one of the, the central dynamics in the book and at Apple is before Steve Jobs dies, he anoints Johnny as the absolute head of design and says, I set up the company so no one can get in his way. And then no one got in his way. And some of the products <laughs> true and some of the products went completely sideways. Meantime, Tim Cook is casting about for Apple's next big thing. And I don't know if anybody remembers that first year, 2011, 2012. Tim Cook was like going on TV and saying, we're going to do it. We're going to do TV stuff because Jobs had ended the book by saying he'd finally cracked TV, which seems like just a masterful troll at this point. 
It is very unclear what he meant when he said to Walter Isaacson, I've cracked it. And so Apple like chases after it for a year, and they chase after a car, and they do all this other stuff. And it seems like Tim Cook is looking over there, and he's given I've control over the product portfolio, which, I mean, Apple is like the most successful company in the world, but some of the products went completely sideways during this period, right? The butterfly keyboard, the phones got thinner, like... It just there's a really weird moment for Apple design in there. That's my perspective from the outside. But reading the book, it seems like there's actually more tension between the two than one's ever revealed. Sir, I mean, there's it's it's an unspoken power struggle, kind of over what will be core to the company's future. You know, Tim needs a new product category essentially after Steve Jobs' death because that's what the outside world is demanding and pressuring Apple to deliver. There was a lot of expectation for that. And Johnny Ive was the natural person to to bring that forward. And the watch was that answer. Ultimately, that's what they went with. And then at the same time, Wall Street's never satisfied. So Tim Cook has to almost think about, well, what's the next thing beyond that? And the answer winds up being the services business that Apple unveiled really officially in, in 2019, but was gradually building through the course of the Beats acquisition and some of the other product introductions along the way. I think power struggle is a really interesting way to put it because there's a weird dynamic between the two of them where they never seemed to fight. Like you, you, I kept waiting for like the meeting where Johnny and Tim like had it out and it never really happened. They just sort of increasingly like diverged paths and Johnny did his thing while Tim did his thing. And because Tim is CEO and because they were making a hell of a lot of money, Tim's way kept winning and Johnny just sort of fell further and further apart from everything that Apple was doing and then started to distance himself and everything went away. But it was it was just so interesting to me to watch just like Tim just sort of like subsume everything, at least as far as I could tell, without any particular like angry power grab over the design team. Well, some of that's just a reflection of Tim's own inscrutability, right? I mean, there's <laughs> there's this, there's a certain degree of unknowability about him. His relationships with people aren't as strong as, say, Jobs' individual relationships with a lot of people were, and so it's an it's a natural out, outgrowth of that. And then also Tim's decision to be deferential to to the creative people. He, the way Apple was structured when Jobs was alive was Jobs was at the at the center of it and the creative people were in the in the ring right around him. And that's what he was kind of migrating around. I mean, from meetings with design team to meetings with the software people to meetings with the advertising people to come up with the next creative ads and everything else. And then the, beyond that and the ring outside of that was operations and finance and you know, legal and some of the other aspects of the company. And what happened when Jobs died and Tim Cook became CEO is all of a sudden the operations people came to the interior of the company. It's almost like throwing a rock into a pond and there were just ripples that kind of flowed across everything. And everyone tried to reassess how they fit into this new world. And Tim's choice in that new world was not to try to replace Steve, not to get involved in product because he didn't feel comfortable doing so. How do you see that playing out with things like Beats, right, where he actually brought in some very powerful creatives? Like, the idea that Trent Reznor was ever an Apple employee is, like, to me, very funny, right? Like, it just doesn't track. But, right, he buys this company because he wants to get into services, and he sees that they've already built something they want. He's got a headphone company to deal with as well. That's a big integration. It's, like, still one of Apple's biggest deals ever. But he brought in these huge creatives that, from my perspective on the outside— Never really did anything. But in, in your book, they're, they're like in the background of a lot of things. 
in complicated ways. Like, how did that dynamic play out? There's pressure at that point in time, right, to satisfy Wall Street, deliver more growth. And one of the easiest ways to deliver growth is to acquire it. The fascinating thing to me in reporting this and and um, the fascinating thing to a lot of the Beats uh, staff who were acquired was once they got inside Apple, they realized that Apple had been at work already on building out a subscription music business. But there was some, for whatever reason, there was some dissatisfaction internally with what that looked like. And a, and a feel that they needed some help from the Beats creative team. So that's why they went out and they brought in Beats. They refashioned Beats. They released Apple Music. It's, of course, flawed. And then, you know, lo and behold, not that long afterwards, all of the Beats staff kind of peel away eventually because this is a giant company with very well-defined rules. And it's it's not kind of the... Um, I don't know, the the kind of rambunctious, <laughs> rebellious place that Jimmy Iovine had fashioned uh, at Beats Music. So, But that to me is like, right, as Apple becomes this bigger content company and now they've got these big Hollywood ambitions, the interplay between the inscrutability of Tim Cook, the nature of Apple's brand, and then the reality of making good art, whether that's music or movies or whatever, those things are like in conflict. And that seems like one of the hardest challenges that Tim very personally has been dealing with outside of Johnny Ive making iOS 7 look insane, right? Like, <laughs> it seems like that was more of a distraction than the product, which is really fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting point. I think while I was at the Journal, we had, a, we had fun with a piece about Hollywood adjusting to Apple's arrival and its expectations for what content should look like and include and there was some real trepidation inside Apple early on about showing anything with, with too much vulgarity, nudity, et cetera. They really wanted kind of a clean cut image. And they've since abandoned some of those inclinations and they've adopted a bit more of an HBO style approach. There's obviously some, I don't know, some uh, interesting content like within uh, the morning show and everything else that suggests that they've made peace with being more dynamic. But I found it fascinating to see that they won a Best Picture for Coda, which for all intents and purposes, like Disney could have made that movie, right? I mean, it's yeah. a, it is a really feel-good film. Yeah, it's the exact kind of thing that I'm sure Tim Cook was like thrilled to win for. <laughs> Whereas like right. I've been watching the show Shining Girls on TV+, Plus, which is basically just all about women dying and being murdered. And going back and like thinking about that piece you did where Tim Cook is like mad that there's cursing in some of the shows is like, boy, things have changed. And part of that speaks to, too, this, this kind of like um, persistence and cautiousness that they approach things with now. I think for a lot of people, that's that's been the jarring thing about watching Apple lately is they remember the, the 2000s and, and kind of all the perfect products that they felt like they, they just arrived perfect. Um, some people forget that it took a little while for the iPod to be as great as it was, but they have this recollection of it being a perfect product. And they're watching and struggling with like, well, why are they only having like 10 shows on this new product that they've launched? You know, why is it taking so long to build this? Why is... Why is Major League Baseball, why are there three people in the booth and the, why are they, you know, why are they struggling to explain what's going on in the game? There are these like moments of imprecision that people are unaccustomed to. But I think that's emblematic of this giant company trying to get things right and having the leeway to do so because it's got so much great reach um, with how many people who have an iPhone and everything else. So uh, the reason I wanted to start with like TV and content and just lay that foundation. Because right now it's very clear that Tim Cook cares about Hollywood. 
and he wants celebrities on his streaming platforms. I think that's all just a cover for the real services revenue, which is in-app purchases and games. And he gets to talk about Reese Witherspoon said. But right, it's very clear that he's engaged that part of the industry. Like Hollywood and Apple are very close now. But a huge part of the book is Johnny Ive saying, we're a fashion company now, and bringing in a bunch of fashion people, especially around the watch, and losing focus on products. Like he's like, there's a line. I actually sent it a screen. Uh, I took a picture of the book and sent it to Walt Mossberg, uh, where Johnny's like, our future is in the hands of like Anna Wintour, not Walt Mossberg. And Walt was like, well, it turned out that <laughs> we are still pretty important. But that <laughs> dynamic, right? You see, I'm just curious how you see that evolution. That they they went really hard at fashion with the watch. You know, it distracted them from making their products really great, the watch in particular. But now they're back to Hollywood. Like they're back in that same cultural sphere that they they tried really hard with Johnny, but Tim has sort of like diligently got himself back into. It's interesting that you raise that and you bring up the fashion thing. I I really wrestled with that and came into reporting on that with the same mindset that a lot of people look back on that period uh, with this day and age where they say like, why the heck did they do that? And I was curious about that as I as I went into it and I left through my reporting, somewhat persuaded that that actually was not a misguided focus. There's a scene that a lot of people point to who worked on the watch from The Devil Wears Prada, where the woman who's kind of playing the character of Anna Wintour upbraids uh, the Anne Hathaway character over having on this cerulean blue sweater and not realizing that it was introduced in fashion two years earlier. And the entire reason that Gap is selling it is because that it was on a runway two years before. And internally inside Apple, for those who kind of were on the fashion leaning side of this thing, that was that was important because they were introducing a watch that was going to look identical. And if you if you think back to your early reviews of it, that was one of the things I think you struggled with was, well, this this looks the same from from on everybody's wrist. And that's not the way watches typically were. So they needed the endorsement of society's tastemakers in order to get that thing off the ground. The problem was that maybe they leaned too far into that and they had to course correct relatively quickly and get into the fitness aspect of it so that people could use it. But really, ultimately, the problem was it just didn't have any battery life. Like if you look back, <laughs> you know, it just, it, you know, it was dead half the time it was on your wrist. Like that's, that's not the most useful product. Yeah. The thing that really jumped out to me was that like, there's a lot of the Apple marketing team in this book, uh, which I think is appropriate. And like, I've had, I, I still remember a bunch of years ago, an Apple exec who was like leaving the company was talking to me and they were like, yeah, the only smart people who work at Apple are all on the marketing team. <laughs> and they're, they're kind of all over this book. And the thing that struck me about the watch thing was that like the fashion piece of it was smart marketing. I think you're right. And they were like, they were talking about it as like the most personal device. And they had all these different bands and like, there's a world in which that could have worked. It's just that the product wasn't that good. <laughs> and there's so much of it in this book where it's like, Johnny really wanted to build a watch. He didn't really know why the health stuff didn't really work. The fitness stuff wasn't ready. The battery wasn't very good. It's just like they, they didn't have the thing to sell in the same way that they did with the iPhone. So if they had like had a very good product and then sold it as fashion, it would have worked, but that was the only thing it had going for it in those earliest days and the only thing they were selling about it. And it felt like that to me was where it was like, okay, this is just the part that they missed. And that's, that's some of the shakedown that you see kind of post Steve. There was a, there's a great moment at the end of one chapter as they're about to launch the watch where you have the lead engineer pull aside Jeff Williams and say, Jeff, 
I got to ask you a question. If you came to work today and you forgot your iPhone, what would you do? And Jeff said something to the effect of, I'd go home and get, get my iPhone. Like, I need my iPhone to make it through a day. And the engineer looks at him and says, well, if you forgot your watch, what would you do? And he said, I guess I'd get it when I got home. And the engineer's point was, that's the reason we can't launch this product. It's not ready. It's not something people need to have yet. I think they've gotten there over time, but it's taken quite some time to get there. So two things. One, I love the Devil Wars Prada. I watch it whenever it's on TV. <laughs> it's a good scene, too. It's a good scene. And I think that I'm Anne Hathaway. And my wife is always reminding me that I'm actually Mr. <laughs> <laughs> That's a real problem. Explains a lot about how the Verge works. But in that, I, I just want to put our focus on the watch as a gadget, right? My pushback when I wrote the review of the first watch was like, this thing is a mess, right? It's actually not a very good gadget. And maybe you can talk all this game about fashion and you can tell me that the digital crown is a revolutionary input device on par with the mouse and the touch, which is what they said, uh-huh. right? But the underlying work to make this thing a great gadget isn't there. And it's when they made it a great gadget that it became this huge success. And they didn't yep. actually need all the fashion focus. If they had just made a great gadget from the jump, the fashion stuff would have just come along for the ride. That feels like, to me, where Apple got lost. When they started taking for granted that they would make great gadgets and the industry would follow them. And what they really were was like a lifestyle company, right? And that's where you get, at least from my perspective, as just someone who like thinks about the products themselves, that's where you get, well, we're going to take all the ports off the computer. And you're just going (laughs) to, Johnny Hyde is going to change the industry because he he wants fewer ports on the computer. Or the phone's going to be a little too thin and maybe it'll bend a little bit eat more easily than it should, or the battery life will be really low. And then he leaves, and like Apple corrects that stuff really fast, right? They go back to making really great gadgets. Is that all Johnny in that moment that's like pushing it towards more aesthetic features, or is it a push and pull? It's certainly a consequence of his philosophy and and, and a push gradually towards thinness. And a lot of people will come at this book and be like, well, why didn't you write about the butterfly keyboard and the fiasco there? And you, anytime you're, you're a writer, you guys can appreciate this. You do this all the time. You got to pick and choose. You got you to make choices. And especially with something like a book, it's got to connect across like a long period of time. That was something that I chose not to focus on because in my reporting and you all's reporting may differ from this. I kept hearing that that was more of an engineering shortcoming than anything else. And that engineers had allowed that to happen rather than the designers. Now, philosophically, what were the engineers trying to do? Fulfill the expectations of designers who wanted things to be thinner, that that, those were kind of the marching orders and is partly an outgrowth of this culture that was directly descendant from jobs empowering design so much and, and turning these guys into kind of the Jedis who can do no wrong inside of Apple, right? That worked when Jobs was there as an editor, but it, it got out of whack when they were, I guess, less left to their own devices. Well, and wasn't it Jobs who I was used to say, like, design is how it works, right? Like, it, it feels like that's the part that seemed like it just sort of fell apart over time to Eli's mm-hmm. point that, like, and I think you even kind of say it at the end of the book that that it became, like, a form over function company. And then Johnny is off, like, spend, helping build an office where people keep running into the glass walls, and which is just, like... <laughs> 
what a perfect metaphor for the whole thing right there. And he's spending his time on this like one Leica camera and worrying about the soap dispensers on his plane. And it, it just you, you could just sort of feel it fall away into like fashion, right? It's like it's not about how the thing works. Well, so let me ask the hard question to follow up on David's point. I think everybody should read this book. It will make everybody mad in different directions. It's a good time. I would say the most, based on the excerpts that have been published in the Times and elsewhere, the thing that is like most focused that sort of anger is the sense that the book is about Tim Cook letting Johnny Ive get away, right? And that Johnny Ive drifting off and not feeling engaged is somehow an error, and Apple has lost its magic because of that. I would argue that actually he should have clipped Johnny earlier, and let him go when he was on his way out the first time yep. and spared the company that weird middle period where his focus was split. That's my read, too. But I think a lot of people are mad about that idea, too. So, like, where where do you come down having written this whole thing? I think that's a fair point. You can pick apart flaws in what both men did. And then you also have to ground those flaws in the fact that both men were grieving. And, and that's something that I think is just fundamental that gets misplaced when whenever you talk about this company. Like, for those who worked with Jobs, you know, his death and the fallout from that and having to come back to work and facing criticism and expectations externally, that's really hard. That's really hard to deal with. And in the wake of that, they, they galvanize themselves around the watch. And one of Johnny's errors in doing that is he takes on a bunch of other different projects concurrently with it. Um, he takes on the watch. He does the Leica camera at the same time. He's working on Apple Park. And in addition to that, you know, Forstall is fired and he assumes responsibility for an influence over the software design and the, and the user interface. Um, and all of a sudden has dozens of more employees that he's responsible for. I mean, Jobs had kept his, his responsibilities pretty narrow in, in terms of like bureaucratic responsibilities of like HR and managing staff and so on and so forth, because he wanted him to focus on design and, and dreaming up products. Tim Cook allowed those things to happen. And also, if you talk to people at Apple on the creative side, one of their frustrations is that he didn't turn to people who had a, had a sense of how to work with creatives and either listen to their advice when they said like, hey, go by, like see Johnny in the design studio, work with your talent and recognize that talent has different needs than some of the people you work with in, an, in operations. And so they were working inside the same company, but really just speaking a totally different language. And that's, and that's where the breakdown is. I, I think there's shared, shared shortcomings in that. And you're probably right. In 2015, if Johnny Ive, if you, had, if you were the Monday morning quarterback and Johnny Ive came to you and said like, look, I'm burned out, I'm tired, I wanna leave, the better thing to do is probably just let him go. You're right. But Tim Cook was so afraid after taking over the reins of CEO that the core leadership group that Jobs had left behind would abandon him, that that, that was something that he was, he, he just couldn't stomach the idea of Johnny Ive going at the time. People said that he didn't wanna be remembered as the CEO who let Johnny Ive walk out the door. So the interesting juxtaposition of your book coming out is it's coming out right next to Tony Fidel's book about building things. And Fidel was obviously at Apple. He was just on Decoder last week. And I, I asked him, you know, Steve Jobs managed this team of gigantic personalities, right? It's Scott Forstall and Tony Fidel and Johnny. And just down the line, these are huge forceful characters. And you look at Tim Cook's Apple, and it's not 
there anymore. That just feels like the the best U2 fan club that has ever existed, and they all drive their Aston Martins around together. Like, it, that, and I, that's obviously a very cultivated image. Fidel's point to me was, look, you just don't know about the the absolute blood sport politics inside of a big company unless you see it. But that is the image that Cook wanted. He did let go of Forstall, who was the biggest personality on that team, had the most forceful vision for how the software should work. And he has sanded off the, the rough edges of the company. Do you think that's, I mean, obviously Apple's like very successful. So by one metric, it's worked. But do you think it's worked? That's what you lost when you lost job, jobs. You lost an Uber ego who really enjoyed managing other egos <laughs> and could do it because, because his word was final and everyone respected him. Um, he was able to kind of balance those things. And what Tim Cook sought to create was a, a more egalitarian world where everybody had a voice and came to some consensus before charting a path forward. And for Johnny Ive, that was incredibly disorienting, right? He, he, he had historically been sheltered from those kind of conversations. And all of a sudden, somebody with artistic sensibilities and an aversion to conflict was thrust into a world where he had to build consensus to achieve what he wanted to do. It just stood in such contrast to what they were accustomed to. The force call bit to me is still fascinating. I don't know what the answer is to this, but you know, not only had he jostled, as Tony Fidel put it, had some sense of blood sport, political blood sport behind the scenes before Jobs' death, but he was also understood by his peers to be the only one who considered himself to be capable of being the CEO of the company. So Tim Cook takes over, and who's the first person out the door? It's the only other person who really considered himself potential successor as CEO. I don't know. I mean, I, I just think that's, that's a really interesting choice. We got to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk to Trip about how Tim Cook became adept at working over politicians. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Trip Mickle. A big piece of the book is Tim Cook having to become a politician. So I would, right, he's got to manage all these egos. He's got all this Apple stuff. He's handling the internal politics of Apple. But then the, there's this the rising pressure for Tim Cook 
to handle actual politics and to be Donald Trump's best friend. It's a great moment in the book, by the way, when it just like you just like turn the page and all of a sudden it's it's just like, oh, and then Donald Trump happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Donald Trump happens. There's a trade war in China. There's a moment which uh, is not in the book, but I think is a signature moment of, of the, that Cook era where that he allows Trump to announce a factory that already exists. And it's just a dead lie. Like he's, <laughs> the factory was there before making the same product before and Trump got to reannounce it. And this is just him learning to play a game that maybe he didn't want to play, but now he has become quite expert at. How much of that, as you were reporting out, came to the fore, that this actually became existential for Apple and became more important than butterfly keyboards? Yeah, it's it's, it's there for two reasons, because it is existential for Apple, and it, in many ways it is more important than the butterfly keyboards. It's representative of what Apple's become, which is a two and a half trillion dollar empire unto its own. It's really a geopolitical force in the world, not unlike the U.S. government or the Chinese government. Both are are dependent on them, on Apple. The U.S. government, because it's such a central part of our economy, and China, because it employs so many people in China, you know, who are working on the iPhones and everything else. My hope in people reading that is they, they have a deeper appreciation for what Apple is today versus what it was in 2011 when Tim Cook first took over. These are these are the type of concerns that are really taking up his day. There's a certain extent to, uh, that that just seems like it was it was coming anyway. Like it's a, it's a really interesting sort of what if to imagine like how Steve Jobs would have dealt with those same things because <laughs> you can't see Trip. He just shook his head very strongly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, because to some some of them were coming anyway, right? Like. I think there's a lot of Apple that has sort of led this to happen, like the way that Apple decided to work in China and the way that it decided to think about privacy and stuff like that. But like Donald Trump was going to get elected president no matter who was the CEO of Apple. Right. And so I think it, it just is an interesting sort of sliding doors moment to see, like, how would that have gone under a different CEO and would they have had to sort of learn how to play the same game? There are a lot of people who, who've worked closely with, with Tim and are just have complete admiration for the job he's done. And they just think that if, if Jobs were in charge, that the company probably would be much less valuable and <laughs> that, that everything that would have happened in the Trump years would have just been a total fiasco and disaster. So full credit to Tim for being able to, to not only increase the company's value financially, um, but also navigate those political, those choppy political waters that, that he did in that period. And honestly, like that's probably more urgent for the company going forward, you know, what they're going to, what they face in relation to China, than whether or not they're going to make a car. I know that's disappointing for listeners of the Verge cast, but that's, I think that speaks to Apple's role in society today in, in a way that you would have never imagined it would in the 2000 to 2010 Camelot era of Apple and all these amazing products. I'm just curious who you read on this. I would say that Cook's ability to manage Trump and China and the trade war and the increasing political scrutiny and regulatory scrutiny of Apple, on the one hand, his greatest success, right? He's done a masterful job at that. His, his I think you called it his inherent inscrutability, I think is an amazing asset. You know what Elon Musk thinks. Do you know what Tim Cook thinks? You do not, right? And I think that's an asset for him. On the flip side, there are some values that he's very clear about, right? He very obviously believes in human rights. He very obviously believes in equality. He came out of the closet publicly to inspire uh, young people. And then you're like, but you do all this business in China and you just brush the stuff under the rug. And that, it might have been his greatest success, but you could also levy it as the greatest criticism of Cook that he has made this deal 
and he will bend to the Chinese government because that's his only path forward. And I, because he's so inscrutable, you like I don't know how he feels about that. Like, does he like walk the streets at night, like you know, like contend with this deal that he's made, or does he just like go to bed on a on a bed of money? It's it's impossible to answer without asking Tim directly, you know, about about how he feels about that. It's not something I was able to get into from people around him. And I think it's become something that's become more pronounced as I've as I've finished the book, because I think we have a deeper appreciation for the for the plight of the Uyghur community in China and the human rights violations that have taken place. That's become more pronounced over the past year, year and a half, not to mention like we are seeing all these like severe lockdowns in Shanghai and some of the trauma that that's created as well. When it, when it comes to that disconnect between what he says here at home and what, you know, their, their presence and dependency on China, that's going to be the one thing that they're going to really have their feet held to the fire over, especially if, if there's a change in congressional leadership in the coming, in the coming months and, and next year. Uh, we're already seeing some of that from, the FCC and Brendan Carr, who's who wrote a pretty critical letter about Apple and how it has this position on privacy and how there's a disconnect between that position on privacy and it not uh, allowing Voice of America in, in China because the Chinese government don't want it to be available there. That to me is like very complicated, right? There's a long section in the book about the FBI and encryption and then the out in that conversation all the time as well. But in China, you just let iCloud be hosted by the Chinese government. Why wouldn't you just let us do that? Why wouldn't you provide us that kind of access? And their answer is always, well, because in America, we, we like really respect privacy and we would never let you do this. But in order to do business there, we have to accept the laws of the country we're in. Right. But you never see Tim Cook like put those ideas together himself. Right. right. You don't see him say that in the congressional hearing. You don't hear him grapple with the contradiction. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, if you think that, that like, having done all this reporting— when that moment comes, which it might if Congress flips or there's a new president in a few years or anything, uh, if Brennan Carr continues to write ang- angry letters, <laughs> I know, Brennan, it's fine. Well, how do you see the company contending with that and keeping focus on the stuff that makes Wall Street happy? That makes Wall Street continuing to make the products they need to make, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you're seeing them kind of wrestle with how to deal with that as they try to spin up manufacturing in India and Vietnam and elsewhere and really struggling with trying to find a way to move on from China and, and diversify their supply chain beyond China. And that's really the only answer. I mean, because up to this point, there hasn't been a plan B, um, but they've got to reduce that dependency. Otherwise, otherwise they're going to continue to run into the type of headaches that they announced in their most recent quarter, where they're, they're saying, we're going to have four to $8 billion less in sales because there's a COVID outbreak and people can't get into the Shanghai factories. You're looking for something more pointed. Like, when is Tim Cook going to comment on this? Yeah. I mean, I, Tim Cook is, is fond of this, this turn of phrase often, particularly during the Trump years, you saw it you know, around immigration, where he would, he would say something to the, line, to the extent of, I wish Trump would put more heart into this. There's, there's a great scene in the book, right, where he goes in to meet with, with Trump as part of this giant CEO meeting, or right before that meeting, Axios has a teaser story that says Tim Cook's going to confront Trump on immigration. And so everybody from the Trump administration comes in there and is like wide eyed for this moment when Tim <laughs> Cook is going to challenge Donald Trump about his immigration policy and totally afraid of what Donald Trump's going to say back to him. And they go through the whole meeting. It never comes up. 
And then as Tim Cook is is leaving, he kind of quietly says to Trump on his way out the door, I wish you put more heart into your immigration strategy. And the next thing everybody knew, that wound up in Axios. And that was what was kind of broadcast back to the work, you know, back to Apple workers, Apple customers, was Tim Cook confronted Donald Trump. But for everybody who witnessed this, this was a far more subtle interaction and <laughs> subtle episode than some big squeeze. And that's that's just his style, right? We're not going to see him come out and say to Xi Jinping, like, I really wish you would shut down all those Uyghur camps that you have spun up um, in Xinjiang, you know, so that we can continue to manufacture stuff there. I, such a confrontation, we'd, we'd be, I don't know, naive to think that's ever going to happen. How do you think about the next CEO of Apple in that context then? Because, you know, he said to Kara Swisher, I think a, a few months ago, I won't be here in 10 more years. Right. He, he's already started talking about it. Like, There's obviously a succession plan inside of Apple. It's what is the most fun game you can play in a podcast? It's talk about who might take over a company. Right? <laughs> it's, it's right there with casting a movie. Uh, who would play Johnny Ive? But when you think about the qualifications for the next year of Apple, right? The, now it is just a company. They're not, you're not necessarily in the, the shadow of Steve Jobs in that way. It is very successful. The products are really successful. The services business is built out. I think a lot of people look and they think, oh, this is it's a product person should run this company. But the argument you're making is actually you need a politician. You need a, an operator and a politician to run a company of this size because it is effectively a state unto itself. Yes. And, and that's what's interesting because the person who's most likely to step into that role hasn't demonstrated up to this point the type of statesmanship that we've seen from Tim Cook. He'd have to develop that. That's Jeff Williams, right? I mean, he, he seems to be the successor in waiting. He and Tim Cook have worked together since their IBM days. Granted, they're they're you know similar in, in age, so there's there's that to contend with. But he he's still the most likely successor. And the one thing that he has that Tim Cook didn't have, if he were to fill that role, is more product experience because he led the watch product and he's been deeply involved in their healthcare efforts. And he also before that was was fairly involved in the iPhone. And when Tony Fidel was was fired from the co company, he he filled Tony Fidel's seat in terms of making some product related decisions on the iPhone. And a lot of people were quite impressed with the degree of savviness that he brought to kind of understanding both the engineering issues that they confronted, but then also some of the design sens sensibilities and um, aesthetic decisions that they were trying to make as well. In the realm of thinking about like where Apple goes next, the car comes up a bunch in the book. The the like mythical Apple car that either will or won't exist. They just hired a new person. They just hired another Ford executive to run the car. It's a real pipeline from Ford to Apple back to Ford. That's what you do. <laughs> to Tesla to yeah, it's good. It's great. Yeah. But so the the car factors in pretty prominently. And then there's this like great what if moment where it was going to be the watch or it was going to be the TV and it turned out to be the watch. And it's like, it is now my favorite alternate history. Like what if instead of getting super obsessed with watches, Johnny, I've gotten super obsessed with TVs, but like, as, as we're looking out towards sort of what's coming next, like my first question is, is the car ever going to happen? Like if you were a betting man, is there ever going to be an Apple car? Yes. Okay. And, and the reason I think it'll happen is I think they've got to move into a category that big. They just do. I mean, they, you know, the growth, the growth expectations of Wall Street will demand that they enter something that new and that ambitious. And we haven't we've seen them kind of dabbling in healthcare for a long time, but we haven't seen them show the ability to 
to turn healthcare into a real financial opportunity for the company yet, I would argue, beyond the watch. I mean, that's still the, the primary income stream for healthcare. And Apple's tried pretty loudly with the healthcare stuff. Like it, Yeah, Tim Cook has said our biggest contribution to the world will be in health. But that doesn't seem to be, like, I, th- I think you're right that that is, whatever that's going to be, it's not that yet. I would say the COVID tracking initiative did not stop COVID. <laughs> no, no. I mean, how many, how many notifications did you get about your, you know, your close close brushes with with COVID through that? The one thing that the reason I'm I'm more I left reporting the book more optimistic about the possibility and potential of a car was weirdly because of what they did with Apple Park and what they pulled off there. I know this is going to sound like a bizarre leap. Why are we going from 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 cars to to construction? But the big feat with Apple Park is that they took um, this incredibly ambitious design to make this curved glass that had never been made before in the world. They persuaded a German manufacturer to build a giant warehouse to make this precisely curved glass. And then in doing so, they not only built this unique building for themselves, but they unlocked the possibility that architects and people in construction could start designing things with similar curvature. It's kind of radical to think about the idea that a company that makes electronics change the construction and architecture industry in a fundamental way. (laughs) And so when you think about that and you think about like auto, you know, could they jump into the auto industry and change the way that's been done for some time? I mean, that's what, that's what makes me optimistic. It's weirdly, it's weirdly the design sensibilities and the design history, which is now, you know, Johnny Ives departed. So TBD, how that, that manifests itself going forward. But it's the operational sophistication and engineering talent of that company to pull off a feat like they did with a building that makes you, makes you look at the car thing and be like, they, could, they came into this. They could do something that nobody else has thought of or done. But why have there been so many restarts along the way? Because this is like... Right. It's their white whale. It, it, I agree with you. It's it's the next biggest market that they can enter, but they can't seem to figure out how or why or what they should do. It, it speaks to some of that, that political blood sport that Tony Fidel was alluding to. The book, the book hits on this, but basically at the outset, you had these two competing ideas uh, for what, what the car could be. One of those ideas was that we just jump in super efficiently and we displace Tesla with an electric vehicle. And the other idea was, well, if we're going to come in, we need to go full autonomy. And, and Johnny Hive was really the one who, who was pushing for that, um, that idea that we go full autonomy. And this was in the, the kind of uh, go-go years where we were all going to be riding around in, in autonomous vehicles. And that's just, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. You talk to anybody who really believed that around 2015, they've given up an abandoned hope that that'll ever be a reality until there's a major breakthrough in AI. But they were all buying into the, you know, the promise and the illusion of that in 2015. So that, that's been the biggest holdup. That was a major problem. It feels like there's a third notion there, which is we'll just make an electric car like Tesla. We'll do this. There's a great scene in the book where Johnny Ive does like a fake Siri demo for, for Tim Cook with an actress pretending to be Siri in the car. And that, that's just nuts. Like <laughs> everyone should buy the book just to read that scene and be like, imagine that actually happening. Because that is just nuts to me. But then there's like the third option, which is we'll just make software for everybody else's cars, right? And we'll, we'll just colonize all the other cars and Apple services will be in them. And they seem to have vacillated between all three of these things. Where do you think they are now? 
right now, literally what they're doing is, they're, you know, they have cars rolling around on the streets with these these mattress pads. I don't know if you guys have seen those locally, <laughs> but there are these mattress pads that are atop the car and they look like giant iPhones um, in terms of in terms of what what's driving around. So they're still looking to refine the autonomous capability of it. And then I guess combine that with some of the battery pack sophistication that they've developed over the years. So you think they're going full autonomous car still? How long do you think that do you think it'll be? God. Yeah, no one wants to make this bet. This is no. how you get fired from leading the Apple no, autonomous no. car project. Thank God, yeah. I mean, we should call the guy at Lyft, right? When, when, when are we going to all be riding around with cars that... Uh, that <laughs> yeah, I interview a lot of autonomous car CEOs on Decoder, and they're all like, I'm not, I'm not making a prediction. Not at this time. <laughs> but you think they're going to do it. You think they're just going to keep piling money into it, and Wall Street's going to let them keep piling money into it. There's no shortage of cash over there. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I think I think <laughs> I, I think I think they can afford to continue to bet on it. I think the bigger question is, and if you look back at the tension, is like who's going to step into that void and and provide some direction. Um, that to me was the more interesting thing when you looked at the car project. Was you know during the Jobs era, Jobs could come in and, and chart a path forward, and everybody could rally behind that. In his absence, in this in this age of consensus you increasingly have conflict without resolution. And that's what I think has been the hangup. All right. Well, we are running out of time with you. Thank you for giving us so much time. Uh, just to wrap this up, you've now spent a lot of time paying attention to these two figures inside of Apple and how the company has worked. What do you think its biggest what do you think Apple's biggest challenge right now is? I think its, it's biggest challenge, you know, this in particular for Tim Cook is is finding his next pair. I mean, when I look back at the history of Apple, it's really stunning when you when you analyze it. But Jobs built Apple with Woz. Jobs returned and kind of saved Apple with Ive. That was his key partner. And then Ive and Cook have been key to this past decade and the success that they've had, both in the development of services and the development of, of the watch and AirPods category. So who's Cook going to team up with now? I mean, if their pressing issues are, are China and figuring out how to reduce their dependency on that. That's certainly something that Tim and Jeff can work on. Is it is it Johnny Shruji? Is is Tim Cook's Johnny really Johnny Shruji? And it's gonna be about <laughs> chips that you can predict how much power is gonna improve on machines on a given year. And you're gonna be more focused on what goes inside the machine than how the exterior of a product looks. I mean, that, that seems to be the direction they're heading. But identifying that person and, and unleashing their talent is going to be key to the, their ability to get there. There's not a lot of chip talk in the book, right? There's not a lot of PA Semi or Johnny Surgery, but this is actually the, the engine of Apple's success over the last two years in particular, is that their chips design, power performance, power consumption far outpaces the entire industry. Their strategy to let TSMC build the chips while they design them, set the model for everybody else. And, you know, the Mac is having a renaissance because they've moved to their own chips and they brought them in-house. If I had to point to one, like, here's a criticism this book is going to get, it's you, it's not in there, right? Why is that not in there? This is gets back to the choices that you have to make, right? You know, if you wanna if you wanna bring the reader along and keep the focus relatively tight, the company that I found myself following and the issues that Tim Cook was most concerned with were developing services, right? And then also dealing with these extraneous issues of the empire that he had built. 
Trump and China. They were less about about the product and where the product was going. And by that point, Johnny was gone. I mean, the book does end in 2019. So when you say like the last two years, well, the book, literally the last page is Johnny Ive walking out of the door. And that was summer of 2019. So you're, you're highlighting a period that the book doesn't cover. And these are choices you have to make. Yeah, and there's like one line that you cut out at the end, was like, and then Johnny Shruji peeked over the bush. <laughs> Watch Johnny. The sequel is called New Johnny. Right, right. <laughs> Trip, this has been amazing. The book is really good. We could obviously talk for another hour. Like I said, it's going to make everyone mad, which I think is the sign of success for a book like this. Everyone's Definitely. mad in different directions. Uh, I have to ask this last question. You're not going to like it, and you're, you're not going to answer it, but I have to ask. Is Johnny Ive the source for the scenes where Johnny Ive is standing alone in rooms contemplating his own future? I can't get into the sourcing, but but you, you you guys know full and well, and it's been hilarious to watch Jonathan Martin and and uh, and the guys who just came out with the book on Trump field these questions like, who gave you the McCarthy audio? Um, it's never who you think it is, right? It just yeah. never is. I mean, it's not the obvious person, and that's why people are having a hard time with the SCOTUS thing as well. Who leaked this? Like nobody's got a clue. <laughs> it's just not obvious. That so. was a really good deflection. I got it that's was. well practiced. Uh, Trip, it's great. I recommend everybody. If you're listening to the show, you're gonna love this book. You should go read it. Congratulations, Trip. It's great. We'll have to have you back on soon. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. We gotta take a break, but when we come back, Alex Kranz will join us for a gadget lightning round. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We're back. Alex Kranz is here. Hey, Alex. Hey, I have no new news about Sexy Clippy. Sorry. (laughs) All right. There's some gadgets to talk about. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of gadget news this week. There's there's a bunch of gadget, like exciting, leaky gadget news. But let's Mm -hmm. start with my favorite, Starlink. Yeah. So I got an email. I think a lot of people got this email. If you're a Starlink customer, Mm -hmm. they will now let you move the dish around wherever you want and use it wherever you want, which is a big step. Huge step. Because before... You kind of like the Starlink divides the world into like little hexagon shapes, and your hexagon is where you could be. And if you left it, you got in trouble. Yeah. So now you can go to any hexagon you want. As someone who has never used Starlink, define trouble. Like, what what would happen if you previously tried to move your dishy? They would shut you down. Oh, okay. Like, first it wouldn't work. And then if you tried to move it on the website too many times, they would like catch you. And so you weren't allowed to like change your location on the website too many times. Because they, they were just protecting the network. None of this is nefarious. They're just like, right. yeah. But they've launched a bunch of new satellites. I think they have the capacity now. So they're enabling portability, which means you can take it anywhere. Here's, here's the, the rub. $25 a month. Oof. Are they, yeah. They're waiving that fee, I assume, in Ukraine. 
<laughs> I don't know what Starlin's pricing grain is like. Uh, they've raised the fees for everyone else. So yeah. they went from 90 to 110 for the base service. And now if you want to move around with Starlink, you're at, a, you're at a, another 25 So $135 for your portable Starlink experience. You still can't like put it on a car, which I think a lot of people want to do. But anywhere you are in a service area, if you pay the extra fee, you can set the thing down and it'll point itself to the sky and go. And am I right in thinking that Starlink has said it's working on the, but, like, you can use it in motion thing? Because that seems like that's pretty clearly, like, the thing it ought to be is that it just works. Yeah. Again, the, the technical limitation of Starlink every time is that even a single utility pole <laughs> right. will degrade your service. <laughs> but one tree will degrade. So, yeah, you're driving around, but, like, if you drive next to a tall car— like you drive next to a semi truck, like or any eighteen wheeler, like, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like you're hooped. So I think there's there's a little bit of that for them to, to yet figure out. I'm pretty sure the answer, like all things Starlink, is more satellites, like Tony Stark style, like a suit of armor around the world. They're just gonna follow you. The satellites will just like be like drones. I think we just need to put satellites on drones. That's the next Starlink. They're launching more satellites. They're opening more service, and now they, they've. This is a big step for them because this is the thing you were not allowed to do before. Uh, and when we reviewed it, I actually tried to give it to Monica where she had bad uh, internet service at her parents' house. And Starlink was like, what are you – the police are coming. Stop yeah. that. And actually part of the thing that people got mad at me in the review is like, I, uh, you know, my house have got big trees. Yeah. So to test it in a place where the installation worked, I drove down the street to where there were no trees. And so then the criticism is, well, you were out of your service area. And I was like, I was just down the street. But now for $25 a month, I can make that criticism go away. So watch out, Starlink fanboys. <laughs> I'm paying the money and coming for you. Re-review. I find this super exciting. Like as someone who does not have any need whatsoever in my life for Starlink, because I have, I mean, I was going to say fast internet, but uh, as Liam, our producer, can attest, it's not fast, but it's internet at home and it works fine. Like the the appeal of Starlink has never actually hit me as a person, but like now Starlink goes from like thing you get if it's your only way to get internet because you're somewhere far with bad connectivity or no connectivity to like it now does things that my Comcast internet connection won't. Like I can take it with me on vacation, which is like a meaningful real thing that I think is kind of cool. Doesn't your phone also do that though? Yeah, but if 5G was real, this would be 5G would be cool and exciting. But (laughs) here we are. (laughs) Right. Starlink doesn't have data caps yet. They're not doing like. They are a better. They are still an ISP, and they, in their terms of service, have reserved the right to do all the bad things. Yeah, right. Sure. You do too much torrenting. Starlink is looking at your pa- your packets, and they will shut you down for copyright infringement, just like anybody else. But right now, they're not doing any of it. I think the question is: Does the network have capacity? And also, traveling with Starlink is like it's a unwieldy and complicated thing. Like, there's a dish, there's a power injector box, there's its own custom router. That's all a lot, you know. Um, so I like. You're trying to take Starlink through the TSA. Like, let me know because I want to be there on that day. <laughs> like, if you have an RV or you're, like, doing van life, I think this is, like, ideal. I was, like, those TikToks of people building their vans so they can live off the grid. So excited for the Starlink episodes now. Notable Verge expat Evan Rogers building a van on his Instagram right now. It's pretty good. Will he put Starlink in it? <laughs> Probably. Knowing Evan, like, that's coming. We'll get, it. We'll get him to review Starlink on the road. Next lightning round item. This is actually really cool. So you can now play Fortnite on iPhone or Android in the browser through Xbox Cloud Gaming, which is like the browser's the out for all of these services and all the in-app purchase stuff. It's pretty cool that you can do it. 
And this was like after Epic pretty notoriously didn't want to work with Microsoft for a long time because they're competitors. And they were like, we don't want you to like, we, don't, we, we, we compete with you. We don't want our stuff on your services. And then they're like, oh, in this particular instance, this is a win for both of us. And Microsoft gets to look very magnanimous. Yeah, it was like an enemy of my enemy is my friend move, this one, yeah. pretty clearly. Yeah. Like, they both have a lot to gain from screwing up this whole App Store thing Apple has going on. And this is, a like, a pretty, it's a pretty good way to do it, actually. They're like, it's in the browser, it works, it's Fortnite magic. <laughs> one of my favorite things is how Microsoft has just been egging everybody on in this whole, like, saga. And, they, you know, they have they have their stake. Like, they want an Xbox Cloud Gaming app. They've tried repeatedly mm-hmm. to do it. They can't. They're doing the browser. And so instead, they're like just being friends with everybody else and being like, you know, that's right. That would be cool. We should be able to have our apps. Yeah. And they're putting out open letters being like, we're the most open company except for the Xbox. Yeah. It's wonder. <laughs> like, I just, I love Xbox. It's just like, don't, don't, don't pay attention to that side of things. So, but you wonder, right? Epic versus Google is marching right along. You have to think Google's going to be like, well, why is this a problem? You can just play it in the browser on Microsoft's platform. Look at how competitive this is. If you're Google's lawyers and you just had that thought just now, I don't know what you're like. You, come on, <laughs> you should have thought about this already. <laughs> that should be first on your list when you see news like this. But I imagine we're going to hear this argument. So there's a little bit of like gamesmanship inside an announcement. What's the counter to that? I like. I know the counter in this room would be, well, have you played things on the browser versus an app? <laughs> yeah. But like, what's the the legal counter besides being like, judge, judge, please play Fortnite on an app right now while we watch. So for Apple, the counter to all the browser stuff was Apple nerfs the browser, okay. which is not really an argument you can make about Google, right? Because and, and there's other browsers available. You can you don't need to use the Chrome engine. On Android phones, you can download other browsers with other browser engines. So there's a lot. I think that case is going to be the much more interesting one compared to Apple. Apple is interesting because you got you know Tim Cook on the stand and the judge is yelling at him. And like the Google case is like that's all deals, right? Google yeah. licenses Android. The deals have the control embedded in the language of them. So like I think there's more to come from that case. Like I don't think the Safari team is like writing a contract <laughs> with the App Store team, but like that's how Android works. Like, they have a contract with, with Samsung and with the carriers and, like, all this stuff. So we shall see. Uh, Chris Welch continues to just ruthlessly scoop the Sonos team about this new thing, the Sonos Ray. There will be nothing left for the actual announcement. They'll just refer to The Verge. I hope they like, go crazy at the actual announcement. They're like, it's actually a TV. And, like, Patrick Spence, like, pulls up. The, <laughs> he's like, aha, I got gotcha. you. It's, like it's a projector screen that pulls up out of the soundbar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's actually a good idea, I'm just going to say. Like, a screen... That pulls up out of your soundbar. It's a pretty good idea. It's a tiny little screen, but like short throw projector in my soundbar throws up on the on the, the pull up screen like you used to have in middle school. This is a good idea. I just I just invented something with the name Sonos Ray. <laughs> it could be a short throw projector because like true. Ray is is kind of a silly name. Apologies yeah. to everyone named Ray listening to this. Ray for the name <laughs> of a soundbar is a silly name, and like. Maybe it's beaming rays of light onto a short throw projector screen. Yeah. Well, it's 250 bucks. It's supposed to go on sale in a matter of weeks. But the more interesting piece that also Chris Welch leak, they're going to introduce their own voice assistant, which is fascinating. So as you know, Sonos and Google are tied up in patent litigation. It all started when Sonos wanted Alexa and Google Assistant to operate simultaneously. Amazon doesn't care because they're the winner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Google apparently uh, said no, like very vociferously. 
that led to patent litigation. Patrick Spence and the chief legal officer of Sonos or Andy Kutter talking about it. But you can see they're like, we'll just do our own to do the things we want to do. So we don't have to extend your platforms. They are building this home theater OS. There's job listings for it. But here's a really funny thing about this. So Sonos Voice will be on all S2 Sonos devices that have microphones. So it will support Apple Music, Amazon Music, Pandora, Deezer, obviously Deezer, how can you forget Deezer, <laughs> uh, and then Sonos has Sonos Radio. <laughs> but Spotify and YouTube Music are not on board. And it's like, well, yeah, obviously YouTube Music is not on yeah. board. <laughs> so close. Spotify's a... <laughs> Spotify's a big one. Yeah, I was like, maybe YouTube, like, uh, I get it. People will survive, but Spotify, that's a, that's a really big one to not have on there. Spotify is an interesting one in that range, actually, because Spotify has its own voice search thing that it obviously has incentives to get people to use. But also Spotify has been pretty open in working inside of this space. Like Spotify Connect is very good. It's everywhere. My guess would be, and I have absolutely no inside knowledge on this, but my guess would be that that is like a timing thing rather than a philosophical difference. Because it, unless there's something we don't know about this voice assistant, it seems very surprising to me that Spotify would not be interested I mean, in being part of it. Or Spotify wants its voice assistant on there, too. Maybe. Right. Because, like, you know, Sonos is like, we'll have Siri on there if Apple would let us. And Apple's like, no, 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 no. No one <laughs> you needs. You won't. No, you don't need that. <laughs> no one needs Siri. <laughs> you don't want Siri on your speaker. Siri exists to be launched by accident on my computer while I'm downstairs. <laughs> that's, that's what Siri is here for. My current Siri moment is I've, uh, I've installed a smart garage door opener. It's very fancy. So I leave the house and I say, close the garage. And Siri on my watch is just like, I'm working on it. <laughs> and that's, it actually says that. <laughs> it's the worst thing in the world. It's like, this, is, this is the dumbest thing that you can do as a computer. You close a relay. That's all it's <laughs> doing. Like the box is very, it, it actually patches into the switch itself and just closes the wire. Like, it's not a complicated. I'm just imagining Siri as like a very tiny person hanging from your garage door being like, come on. Come get down. it down. It's like, I'm come working on, on it. I'm going to just like, like, like uh, Doc Brown and Back to the Future. Like, I got. Uh, and then about 50% of the time it fails. Yeah, that's it. Right, right. Whenever, they, when it, whenever she says I'm working on it, you're like, oh, I'm just going to have to say this in 20 minutes once you finish working on it and failing. Yeah. Like every time. But it's funny because it, it, Siri, um, it suggests all these like very optimistic automation routines. Yeah. Like when we detect you, that you've come home and we're paired to the car, we'll open the garage for you. And I'm like, you can't op- you don't you can't open the garage. Like I don't Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you think you're gonna That's like me saying I'm gonna run a marathon. Like I'm definitely not gonna do that. <laughs> I had her set up so where she was supposed to whenever the camera detected motion and I wasn't home, it would turn all the lights red and sing that song I'll be watching you. To really creep, freak out whoever had snuck into my home, but That's then it amazing. only activated when I would get home. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't like the trigger that I was home would come later. So it'd be like I'm watching you, and I'm like, no, I, I know, I mean, no, something's wrong. Oh Alex, you don't know this, but I have to remind. I'm obligated to remind you that um, Siri on our show is an it. We do not gender robots on the Vergecast. Sorry, I apologize. We all, it only comes up because Amazon is so insistent on gendering Alexa. It's rude. And it's like they don't have gender; they're robots. Yeah, and not very smart ones. <laughs> yeah, they're very stupid robots. But wait, so I, I have a question about this Sonos thing. So I think, like, leaving aside whether Sonos can do this in a way that is good, which I would say, given Sonos's software experience, is just an absolute coin flip. 
Who knows? Sometimes yeah. Sonos does cool stuff. Sometimes it's a total disaster. Coin flip. We'll see. I think this is a very good idea, both for like strategic reasons, because Sonos is just going to like middle finger Google and Apple and Amazon mm-hmm. and everybody else who doesn't work with them. But also because my my like long standing thesis about voice assistants is that actually we should have lots of them and not just one. Like, yeah. I want to I want to talk to my TV by talking to my TV, not by talking to Alexa about my TV. And I think like Roku has worked on this in the past and to be honest, has changed its plan so many times that I have no idea what Roku is doing with voice assistants anymore. But I think this idea that Sonos is like, okay, you want music, talk to Sonos. Don't talk to Alexa about Sonos, talk to Sonos. I actually Mm -hmm. think is a really good idea for a bunch of reasons, especially as they want to get people like used to the idea of using its products in lots of different places. So if they can pull this off, I actually think it's going to be really smart and music assistants work. They're good. Yeah. And I also think they have a great pot. So uh, I know they've told us, they've told everybody, they make products that microphones because oh, a huge segment of customers do not want microphones and everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Because privacy implications. So if you're Sonos and you're like, this isn't Amazon, this isn't whatever else, this is us. And what it does is it plays music, which is a thing you want to do. They throw in multiple timers, like, whoo, watch out. <laughs> Give you the weather? Like, yeah. Bezos, done. your empire will crumble. Yeah, but maybe not even the weather. Like, maybe it's just that the the things that people do, which is set timers and play music. Yep. And they're like, this is what we do, and it's private, and, you know, we're not going to sell you ads, or we're not going to pop up and say, like, have you heard about the games? We're gonna, like, we're just going to do the two things. Very smart. Question is, are they going to make you pay for it? Oh, that's an interesting question. Ooh, I hate that question. Like, is this like a premium Sonos subscription situation? I mean, that makes a lot of sense for them looking for, like, additional revenue streams. Like, everybody wants that consistent $5 a month. These customers all have money to pay, like, right? Who doesn't love recurring revenue? Well, and especially as they're going to start to, like, if they're going to make headphones and they have these Bluetooth speakers, like, being the thing that stitches everything together is Sonos's whole thing. And then add on to that, like, this amazing control system, I could absolutely see them charging for that. I feel like there's two things that will make this kind of dead on arrival. Not having Spotify. Yep. Like that's a huge one. And also the fact that if you already have other smart assistants in your home, you're now having competing smart assistants and you have to remember their names and remember to activate the right one at the right time. Maybe that's just a me dead in the water thing, but I will forget the names immediately. I will absolutely call Siri when I mean to call Sonos and the other way around because I do it with my dog and my brother now. Like when one of them isn't even a, like a human being, I will mess it up constantly. I think I'm with David. Though. I think that's just timing given historically where Spotify is or Spotify demanding that they get their weird voice thing on there too. We'll see. Um, this Chromebook seems amazing. It's, it's amazingly expensive. I'm, but I'm like down with the thousand dollar Chromebook. So I, I added this one to the rundown, and it's that's the exact conversation I want to have because this has been tried a bunch of times. And as far as I can tell, this this new Chromebook, which is it's called uh, the HP Dragonfly, the HP Elite Dragonfly. You're right. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> the Elite Dragonfly. It has, I mean, high end chips. It has Intel's V Pro platform. It gets super bright. It has an HDMI port. It's like it's a it's a whole ass computer. Uh, and it starts at $1,149. And I think the question I have been wondering for years is like, will anyone want to pay this much money, even for the best imaginable Chromebook? And I'm actually really excited for at the idea that we're going to find out. They didn't do it with the Pixelbook. Why would they do it? What's the difference between this and the Pixelbook? Well, the Pixelbook was a little shaky. It was like a little too much. Yeah. Right? I love it. But that I thing. will say this. I bought my mom a Chromebook Pixel 
It was $1,000, uh, and it is the single best technology purchase I've ever made because you do not have to support that thing. Yeah, it's a real. web browser. It just goes. And there's all the other stuff that Chromebooks can do now. Like they have, they can run Android apps for some godforsaken reason that hopefully Dieter will figure out. <laughs> hey, buddy. But like, it's just a web browser. And you like hand somebody a beautiful laptop that isn't like, have you heard about services revenue? We've opened the, the Apple TV app is on your laptop for some reason. Like, none of that. No, no Windows garbage. It's just like, here's a web browser, but it's beautiful. Like, it, my, it's still my mom's, like, primary computer. Year, and this is years now. Like, maybe five years she's still using this thing. And I'm like, well, like, it's time to upgrade. And like, here we go. You're an elite dragonfly now, Mom. <laughs> You're a real gamer. Oh, God. If only it wasn't called the elite dragonfly. <laughs> I do love that this is the first one that's kind of, like, had a really good display. Or sounds yeah. like it has a really good display. We haven't seen it in person. But a thousand nits, like that's that's nice. Yeah, the Pixelbook had those bezels. I wasn't about to put those bezels near my mother. I respect her. She's a brilliant and accomplished woman. I tried to say that I liked the bezels, and as I get older, I'm like, why did I say that? I was like, it's good for my fingers when I'm in. You said you liked the bezels when I was in tablet mode. It was really nice. I played a lot of Fallout Shelter on the Pixelbook, and it was great. For that, and that's it. That's a wild take. Yeah. And then I tried to put fuchsia on it and broke it. So <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to buy this one. <laughs> I can see it coming. And this is like a thing. There's, a, there's a. These are starting to trickle out. These computers that are like very good computers that ordinarily like could have run Windows one day and now are running Chrome OS. Uh, and I feel like if I'm Microsoft, that's real bad news. But yeah. as a person who loves Chromebooks, I think that's super exciting. Wait, it's just an i3. Oh, yeah, that's it's it's a Chromebook. I mean, it doesn't need a lot, but also, yeah, it's an i3. I think it even has less. It has not a lot of storage. Eight gigabytes of RAM, 128 gigabytes of storage. So for the same price, you can get a MacBook. Yeah, but the MacBook will like the MacBook will just like find ways for Tim Cook to ask you for yeah. money at like the slightest <laughs> provocation. The, the MacBook will I mean, I, I got my mom one over Christmas and the calls. About yeah. that I get, I feel. Oh yeah, I'd, I'd still do it with a Chromebook, but that's just because my mom's annoying. But like, I love it's the iCloud troubleshooting for me. <laughs> You're it's wonderful. The iCloud troubleshooting, I can't. Yeah, do it. well, she doesn't. She, she doesn't want anything. In the, she's like, I don't want anything in the cloud. No one has ever cared about anything in my life as persistently as my MacBook has cared about turning on Wi-Fi calling. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like I don't. I, I do not wish to ever receive phone calls on this device. <laughs> like, please stop it. <laughs> so persistent. All right, last one. This is like leaks week. It was. And this leak actually blew up. So the Sony's got new headphones. Yeah. I always get the name wrong. The WH-1000XMH5. No, just XM. XM5. I think the H5s are the earbuds. Yeah. Yeah. I always get this mixed up. Anyway, I have the XM2s. You know, they're great, but the battery's starting to go. And every year, I'm like, should I get the XM3? Should I get the XM4? And like, no, because they're the same headphones. But these are appreciably different, which is yeah. all that matters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, these are still – these were my go-to airplane headphones, and I stopped wearing – or my XM2s were my go-to airplane headphones, and then I stopped flying on airplanes. But now I'm on airplanes again, and I'm like, oh, the noise-canceling – like, noise-canceling technology has improved dramatically. Yeah. So I'm in it. But Sony still has a problem like everybody else does. If you have an iPhone – you're stuck with whatever Apple will let you do. So you can't do high-quality audio. You can't do uncompressed. Like, you're just kind of stuck at Apple's sound quality situation, which I am sure the next versions of the AirPods 
will overcome in some proprietary way. And like you just have to you just have to look into your heart and be okay with that. Yeah, and truthfully, I think for most people, the like the thing the Sony's have going for them, which is stupendously long battery life. If especially if this leak is true and it's forty hours, like that's a, that's a crazy number. Really good noise cancellation. They're super comfortable. Like that's the thing about the Sony's that always gets me is just the they're like little clouds. Yeah, I can just wear them for like a eight hour journey and it doesn't feel bad, which I love. And I also think their their microphone is really good, which is a thing that it's possible I am the only person on earth who cares about, but uh, matters to me a lot. Yeah, I'm very excited about these Sonys, especially if they have, like, the new design is a little sleeker. It has kind of a, a little sort of candy cane looking thing attaching the band to the cups instead of just being, like, all band. And, yeah, I these Sonys, I think, have consistently been the best noise-canceling headphones for a bunch of years now. And the, the XM5. Since the XM2s. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I got the XM3s. I love them. I wore them to Taiwan and back, like, with my glasses on, which is normally, like, a recipe for pain. Totally comfortable. It was great. I mean, 14-hour flight wasn't, but the rest was really great. And, <laughs> like, yeah, they, they just, and the noise canceling, like, the way Sony does noise canceling and their approach to it, where they don't kind of, the sound profile still, they still maintain quality in the sound profile, whereas Bose goes really flat. Apple goes really just expensive. Nobody wants to buy the Apple ones because they're... I don't even know how they sound because they're... They're also heavy and weird. Yeah. And like these are like... AirPods Max, I mean? Yeah. These are clouds. These are clouds that shut off the airplane for you, <laughs> but still get you where you need to go. I haven't tried new Bose ones. I have Quiet Comfort 2s, and they're so bad at low end that they're <laughs> almost unlistenable to me. I have the, the QC45s, which are not like the highest end one, but are pretty recent ones, and it's exactly the same thing. Like I... I love the way they sound. I love the way they feel. And if it is like if it's been if it has been breezy in the last five days, my headphones will sound like trash and it sounds like I am blowing away in a storm. (laughs) It's awful. (laughs) Otherwise, they're great, though. But no, I think that like, yeah, these Sony's are very exciting. And I'm absolutely convinced that if they had a better, more memorable name, they would have absolutely already eaten the headphone market alive. But because no one can go Google them and find them. We still have to tell people they exist. Yeah, I do this for a living. And I still can't say the product name correctly. All right, we went. We talked. We spent a long time talking to Trip Mickle, so we are officially over on the Vergecast once again. Alex, thank you. Yes. Some stuff to plug. You should listen to Decoder this week. Uh, we had Tony Fidel. It was a real, a real ride. And then obviously the Fidel conversation and the Mickle conversation you just heard like play off each other. Fidel, by the way, there's some people who are like actively and aggressively fact-checking his conversation with me on Twitter right now. Oh, boy. <laughs> like, ex-Dropcam employees. Uh, so that's oh pretty my. good. Alex has got her mini-series. What's going on with creators this week, Alex? So this week we, we talked to Jacob Alexander, who is one of, like, the first guys who started selling keyboards online. Like, people were selling keyboards online, but he was selling them on Kickstarter, making his own keyboards, and we kind of talked about where the space is and how we got there and where it's going to go next and how it's like small creators like him who are doing it. It was very fun. It was a great episode. And next week, we're going to talk to the guys from Ploopy. No no follow-ups. You're going to have to listen to find out why it's called Ploopy. It was the first thing I asked. It was great. Ploopy's coming, everybody. Uh, you can tweet at us. Uh, Alex is Alex H. Kranz. David is at Pierce. I'm at Reckless. We'd love to hear from you. That's it. That's Orgecast Rock and Roll. Thanks for listening to this week's show. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at vergecastattheverge.com. And if you liked the show, share it with a friend. Vergecast is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. 
Today's episode was produced by me, Liam James, and our senior audio director, Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. That's it. We'll see you next week. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.